Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and you're listening to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing in our series entitled Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, with a message entitled God Names Us. So let's join Dr. Newfeld for this message. Years ago, I had a book on my shelf, which I think I read, but I really can't remember it that well. What I do remember well is that the title of the book and the picture on the cover, the author and the major premise of the book, I remember those things. It was written way back in the 1970s, so don't judge me too harshly when I say I've forgotten most of it. But here's what I remember with clarity. The book was written by Michael Griffiths, and it was entitled Cinderella with Amnesia. The subtitle was A Practical Discussion of the Relevance of the Church. Furthermore, the book's cover had a depiction of Cinderella dressed in fairly ragged clothing and sitting on some form of a basket in a fairly sparse and barren room. As I said, she was dressed in very plain clothing, and she was holding a glass slipper in one hand while the other hand had two fingers over her mouth. She is fairly confused, so clearly she's puzzled and wonders what the slipper is all about. See, that's what I remember with great clarity. It's an interesting and a fascinating picture. I also remember the premise of the book. The book tried to show that the Church of Jesus Christ is more than a Sunday morning event or a building. But like Cinderella with amnesia, it's possible that we can stand there looking at the church in a total state of amnesia, having forgotten what it was really all about or what it's for. Now, this idea of remembering and not forgetting, well, that's central to the Bible. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 8 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, the reason for that is that as time passes and the things that were vivid at one moment become distant and vague with time, then a new generation rises and unless the clarity of what God has done is taught, The things of God retreat from human memory and we're left in darkness. But the good news is that God has a way of reminding us. If you're listening to the last broadcast, you'll remember that one of those ways that he reminds us is by teaching us his name, or in this case, a number of names by which he is called. El Elyon, God Most High. El Olam, the Everlasting God. And El Shaddai, God, the Almighty One. And with each calling of his name, our memories are jolted, and suddenly we wake up so that we might not forget. But in today's message, God not only announces his name, El Shaddai, he gives Abram a new name so that from this day forward, his name might remind him of not just who God is, but who he is. Now, the idea of changing a name is not new to those of us who know the Bible. You remember that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had four young Hebrew men before him. They were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he changes their names after the names of his gods to give them a new identity. But there are plenty of other positive name changes. Remember a man named Joseph. After he sold his land and gave all the money to the church, the apostles changed his name to Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement. Or how about Cephas? Jesus changed his name to Peter, meaning the rock. How about Jacob, Abraham's grandson? 
God changed his name to Israel, after whom the entire nation gets its name. Saul of Tarsus got the name Paul, which was a Latin name and had everything in the world to do with his Gentile mission. Name changes signal something, prompting our memory. And for Abram, his memory needed constant prompting. You see, that's because Genesis 17 verse 1 begins with when Abram was 99 years old. You know, Abram was 65 years old when God called him to leave his country and go to the land that he would show him. It's now 34 years ago. God promised him that he would have a multitude of descendants. God promised to give him a land and a multitude of nations would follow him. But Sarai had remained barren and now he had a son by Hagar, who by this time would have been 13 years of age. It has become clear that if nothing changed, by now it would seem as if nothing had changed and it would seem that Ishmael would inherit Abraham's blessing. So many years had passed and Abram was now old and it would seem that that wild-eyed dream has turned out very differently than he would have imagined. The cold reality of the contrast of what he must have believed at the beginning when he first followed God into this new land had now become the familiar land in which he was growing old. Was there the possibility of forgetting? John Kelvin thought that the 13 long years that followed the birth of Ishmael and no birth through Sarai was designed by God as chastisement for Abram's lack of faith in the debacle with Hagar. That may well be the case. We just don't know. And the text doesn't tell us. But we do know that after a long period of time, the promise must have seemed farther away than ever before. The danger of forgetting was always there. I'm sure that Abram's struggles at this point, that they're not unlike many of the same struggles that we face today. There are times when we struggle to hold on to the promises of God. There are times when we, in our deepest fears and doubts, wonder if all that God has promised us is really true. When it seems like the unrighteous win and the righteous suffer, when it seems like the promise of Christ's soon return seems like a lifetime away, some of us sense that we just can't go on. We, we have this sense of hopelessness. But we're about to read what Abram discovered. I'm reading Genesis 17, verses 1 to 4. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. You know, at the outset, in order to help Abram remember, God does two things. First, he tells Abram his name. He is God Almighty, the one who has the power to do all that he has promised. Second, God reveals that he is determined to show Abram what he desires for him, how he wants Abram to live. And so God gives Abram two commands. The first is simple, walk before me. In Abram's day, it was how you got around. You simply walked. No cars, no planes, no public transit. If you wanted to get somewhere, you walked. In fact, all of life was walking. In a great many countries of the world today, that's still exactly how people live. And so life itself was thought of as a long walk. It's a journey. 
And seldom in this journey does a person walk alone because people will often walk in groups. And as they walk, they'll talk. I mean, they talk about their children and their hopes and their dreams. They talk about everything that's important to them. In fact, most of the time, you would choose who you would walk with, and you would look forward to that time. I say that because of some very fascinating words in Scripture. Remember a man by the name of Enoch way back in Genesis chapter 5. The Bible says Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him. Imagine that. Everyone was walking with their friends, but Enoch was walking with God. And at a time when he might have forgotten, God says to Abram, not walk with me, but walk before me. Read literally, it actually says, set yourself to walk in my presence, always conscious of me and always desiring my approval. Just because you're 99 and Sarai remains barren, don't you forget to walk your path in life seeking to please me. And then God adds one more thing, be blameless. Oh, I can hear some of us saying, it's just not possible because for us, we think that means sinless. And as you and I know, as much as we might wish we were sinless, we are in fact unable to be that, so we despair. I can never be the kind of person that God wants me to be. I mean, so many Christians spend much of their lives living in perpetual guilt. But the Hebrew term for blameless doesn't actually mean sinless. It means a wholeness of relationship. It means to have integrity. To have integrity is to have a consistency of personhood. Let me explain. Have you ever met someone who acts differently at different times? I mean, when they're in church, they're going to talk spiritual. When they're at work, they talk with a foul mouth. And when they're at home, well, you get the point. Who they are is constantly morphing into something else. But God wants us to learn consistency. He wants us to be a whole people, not forever changing like a chameleon to fit in wherever we can. If we are blameless, we in effect let God into all the different compartments of our life. In effect, the phrase, be blameless, only repeats the first phrase, walk before me in such a way that you'll never walk outside of my presence. Ministry Monthly partner Ellen wrote, The Bible teaching I received from Back to the Bible Canada is outstanding, and Dr. Newfeld's delivery is thoughtful, honest, and clear. I'm so happy the program is available to me daily, in my home, and to others across Canada. I wanted to continue, and that's why I chose to become a monthly partner. Well, Ellen, among hundreds of others, have become part of the backbone of all of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada by joining the Partner to Tell monthly partnership program. If you've been impacted by the Bible teaching of Dr. Newfeld, the words of hope from Laugh Again, or directly or indirectly by the Young Adult Ministry in doubt, can I suggest that you take the leap and become a Partner to Tell monthly partner today. It's simple, yet so important. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. As Abram is advancing in years, God appears to him and both announces his name and what he wants of Abram. And then God adds the purpose of all of this. It's in verse 2. It's that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, to be clear, this is not an additional covenant added to what we already had. 
This might be read that I might reaffirm my covenant with you. I want to make sure that at this advanced age, after following me for 34 years and not having seen the thing that I have promised you, that you don't give up. So let's return to the covenant. Let's return to what I promised you at the beginning. And God then reaffirms that he will multiply Abram greatly. And in response, Abram falls on his face in worship. Not doubt, not why has it taken so long, he worships. And with that comes a highlight. God changes his name. The name Abram means exalted father. Now in itself, that's a very good name, but it's not good enough. His name now is Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. And I need to stop here for a moment and have us think about that. Imagine Abram, now Abraham, announcing to his wife, his staff, his servants, the military men attached to him, the political alliances that surround him, that God has met him and given him the name Abraham. I mean, what must they have thought? Or imagine a stranger being introduced to him and he says, my name is Abraham. I'm the father of a multitude. And the stranger says, you know, that's quite a name. You must have a a very large family, maybe as many as 20 kids. I mean, just how big is your family? And to that, Abraham would have had to respond and say, oh, actually, I've just got one son. And the stranger says, one son, that's it? Now you have an ostentatious name. I mean, the father of a multitude. Well, I, Abraham would have said, I get your point, but there is something you don't understand. You see, in God's eyes, I am the father of a great multitude. See, I can imagine my children as a great company of people, and it's more than my imagination because these kids actually exist in God's eternal plans. Now, the stranger responds, I mean, just exactly how old are you? And he says, oh yeah, I'm 99, and all these kids are still in my future. Now, if you stop and think about that for a moment, you and I would come to make an immediate application in our own lives. Think for a moment that God has called you as his chosen vessel. Yeah, you, as you struggle with your own sin. Think that God has created you to rule and reign with Christ over all the works of his hands. Yeah, you, who can't seem to even get a handle on your small business. Do you see how audacious all of that is? how completely, impossibly crazy all this matter is. And once you see that, you're going to see the nature of faith. But isn't that just like God? Listen to how Paul describes this matter in Romans 4.17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls the things that are not as though they are. God just talks about things that don't exist as if they actually do. Let me give you some examples. Remember that wild and woolly disciple named Cephas? Jesus took one look at him and said, I'm giving you a new name, Peter, Rocky. You're the rock of the church. Can you imagine taking a guy like Cephas, this fisherman who's always getting everything wrong and calling him the rock of the church? See, how about you and I? You can read through the whole New Testament and begin to read your new name. You're a saint. That's what Paul begins some of his letters with, to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So if the truth be told, I should become known as, you know, not Dr. John, but St. John, and you, St. Bob, St. Mary, St. Carl, St. Sandra, so on. 
You see, that our faith is confident trust in the God who names us and gives us our identity, tells the world that God is our God. Now let's look at verses six and seven. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make you into nations, and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, descendants of Abraham have to include more than the descendants that come from Isaac. The natural descendants of Abraham also include Ishmael. Genesis 25 names a number of Ishmael's children in order of their births, which lists 12 sons, calling them 12 princes of 12 tribes. We also know that after the death of Sarah, Abraham married again to a woman named Keturah, and with her he has six more sons. That would mean that Abraham's sons are eight in all, and from them all manner of peoples came into being. Furthermore, I've been making the point throughout this series that Abraham's spiritual offspring, those who are united with Christ, are made up of Jews and Gentiles and have been grafted into the vine. Now, putting matters like that makes the words exceedingly fruitful and kings and nations coming from Abraham a perfect description of what God has accomplished through him. But please hear these words. Abram is not renamed Abraham after all of those things happened. No, no. He is named Abraham before those things came to pass. That's because God demanded that he believe him first, and then the reality would come. Not that the reality came first, and then Abraham would believe. Abraham is, after all, not just the father of nations. He's the father of faith. His life testifies that God wants of us that we should believe him when he promises. And that's exactly what's required of you and I. The fulfillment of the promises made to you await first your faith. You're required to say the opposite of seeing is believing. Instead, you're required to believe long before you see. And so it's not seeing is believing. Rather, it's believing will result in seeing. And if we learn nothing else from the life of Abraham, it is this one thing. It is not that faith is opposed to evidence. No, no, that's not the lesson. Faith does invite us to weigh the true evidence. That is, faith invites us to ask and answer the question of whether or not God can be trusted. But once we conclude that God, the Almighty One, is always trustworthy, then the Almighty One demands that we take him at his word. For no one who disbelieves ever receives the promises. Now to Genesis 17, verse 8. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You know what it means for God to be your God? Let me allow God himself to explain that. From Jeremiah 32, 38 to 41. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them, and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. I hope you heard that. If God is our God, he will use all his power all his might, all the things that he has declared to us when he revealed to us 
his names. He will use all of that for our benefit. Indeed, he will find great joy in doing good to us. He'll never stop doing good to us for all of eternity. Wherever you and I may walk, we will never stop seeing God arranging all the details of our lives for our long-term good. So let's go all the way back to where I started, Cinderella with amnesia. If believers ever forget the promises of God, if we simply focus on what can be seen rather than the eternal God who is and the promises that he has made, if we substitute the realm of the eternal for the ups and downs of just everyday life as we see it, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But if we never forget, if we believe regardless of what our circumstances look like today, if our hope is firmly placed in the unseen promises of God rather than the outcomes of what we see today, then we, like Abraham, will one day see that our faith will become sight. To Him be the glory. John, this was a great message. I'm thinking about Abraham now, and I'm thinking about his faith. And, and obviously, you know, the faith of Abraham, he had faith to, to, to believe in something that he would never actually see, and yet he believed. And, and we have something to say about that in respect to our faith in Christ. Yeah, I mean, faith is uh, to put our trust in God. So it's, it is that, and we always do say that. But faith deals with future promises that we do not yet see. And so those promises that deal specifically with our eternity and that celestial city that has been promised to us is the one that we grasp a hold of, and it becomes the only real thing that we have. So, you know, Scripture always says that the things that are seen are those things that are passing away. So everything that seems concrete and visible to us will one day no longer exist. But those things that we don't see that God has promised, that's going to go on for all of eternity. So, I mean, that's ultimately getting at the very nature of what faith is. Now, of course, faith uh, by its very nature is always directed towards God. So, I mean, the consideration of the character of God, the consideration of the God who has made the promises is for us the primary issue. But we act when we have faith as if these things that we do not see are going to yet happen. Thanks so much, John, for those words of encouragement. Join us again tomorrow for Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. You've heard the expression, you never know what someone is going through until you walk a mile in their shoes. Well, I'm amazed and moved at the number of incredible testimonies we receive from people confronting tragedy. Recently, a close friend lost his brother-in-law in a motorcycle accident and his sister was left critically injured. The tragedies of life arise without warning, often ending with profound loss and grief. What a blessing that so many would choose to share their stories with us. It really highlights the privilege of believers to share the powerful healing, hope-renewing message found in the Bible. The daily teaching of the Bible is a privilege of this ministry. And as a result, God has used His Word to draw people to Himself. Our sincere thanks for your support in making this privilege a reality every day. Please continue to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada by sending that all-important gift today. 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online with your donation at backtothebible.ca.